They keep saying it can't be done, but yes, 128 episodes in, and we are still the film file, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. We ain't going anywhere. I genuinely feel that way when I keep looking around these hotel rooms. <laughs> <laughs> like the prisoner. Coming live to you from different parts of the country, I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Beacon. And this is The Film File. Hello and welcome to another of your favourite film podcasts presented by us. Me in my little studio at home, Andy in some bizarre prisoner style hotel room where he can't leave. <laughs> yeah, they lock me in here every night and I can't get out. Uh, it's a slightly Commonwealth themed show this week because the Commonwealth Games starts next week in the uk so uh it's uh, it's gonna be a nightmare for me doing me traveling backwards and forwards as a result because i have to pass through birmingham commonwealth central we're kind of celebrating and this is particularly no barriers radio is celebrating the commonwealth games this week on the lead up to it and so we've got a few selections that are going to be themed around countries to do with the commonwealth indeed we are uh we're still trying to figure out what those are as we record <laughs> this but that's we are seed of your pant kind of guys i'm boy scout as usual and i'm already prepared with my I stuff because uh you, you like to, i like to have scripts of notes whereas you just like you're just off the cuff that's why i like occasionally when you throw out a random question to me that I wasn't prepared for I'm just, i'll just sit and look at you going uh. <laughs> So I didn't research that one. Hold on a minute. Uh, but I, I'm, quick at I'm quick at typing and looking things up, so um, it, it, I kind of get away with it. When I first started <laughs> doing radio, I would come in with a really well-prepared script, all the details, everything that I was going to say, bullet points over everything. <laughs> that lasted about two weeks. And I used to do a radio show with the BBC. With a, uh, You'll know if you listen in Sheffield, but with Toby Foster, who's a stand-up comedian. And if you've not seen him, you'd recognise him from Phoenix Nights. Yeah. And scripts went completely out of the window because he's so fast that the first show I remember doing with him, I was exhausted trying to keep up with him because no matter what you say would never be as funny. But you just had to learn to either fall in line with the humour and, and, and ride with it is probably the best way to describe it or, or you go to pieces so after that I, I, I'm a fly by your seat of pants kind of guy Aside from the Commonwealth Games coming up I mean that last week's weather I mean we were talking about it last week but it just never seemed to stop we got a burst of rain yesterday which was so refreshing I it was, was stood in it, it? I was stood outside with just a t-shirt on. I, I had trousers on as well. I just oh, want to make this clear. Yeah. To what the people of Banbury we must apologise to. <laughs> but it was just one of them where, you know, where you just stand outside and just put your arms out and just embrace the fact that you've got some, not, I wouldn't say cool, because it was still quite warm rain, but at least it was some moisture. Oh, I needed it. Was, it. Uh, it was bizarre. It. I had friends from the, from the States getting in touch to see if I was okay or we were okay. You know, it was a big international story. I'll tell you what's interesting. I, I, uh, I've been on CNN, uh, just I'm a bit of a news junkie, and uh, I try to get my news from more than one source, which is a good trick to have, folks. Yes. Keep it in mind, kids. And um, so I was on CNN, and, and the coverage of it was, was quite incredible, reading you know, the worry of, of us being in this, this heat wave uh, in the UK, and, and just how they look at British politics in a, in a way that we don't. <laughs> Not scathing, but a little bit putting a mirror up to the country in a way that, that the British press aren't doing. Quite yeah. quite a, an interesting take on it. But yeah, it's been super hot. The British press seem to be great at being critical of the US mm. politics, but yeah, a bit dismissive about you know the state of affairs in their own country. 
But I think that's probably a national thing from every country is that every yeah. country shines more of a mirror up to everyone else because they like to think that everyone else is worse than what you've got. And yeah, we, we and, and the French just like, you know, they put a mirror up to the rest of the world and just go, you're all idiots. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> I do like the way that the French just protest, though. It's, it's something that we, we just have a tendency to go, oh, well, that's the way it is. And the French go, no, we will burn our sheep and set fire to um, to old ladies. Yeah, protest in the UK is like, I'm going to I'm going to put a strongly worded letter together. <laughs> yes, I might not even send it. I'll be I've still got this letter that I might post one day. <laughs> you will see me on Twitter, sir. <laughs> yeah, but the French are just like, ah, uh, oh, my coffee was was a bit disgusting today. I'm setting fire to that car. Boom, boom. Uh, <laughs> any French listeners out there, I'm sorry to stereotype you. Yeah, you're not all you're not all that bad, but you do certainly know how to rise up against intolerance and injustice like, and rise up against your government. So kudos to you, because I think every nation could learn a thing from that. Except for America, who, when they tried to rise up against their government, it was for the wrong reasons. <laughs> anyway, as we said, we're not a political show. We are, in fact, <laughs> yeah, the that's, that's three weeks on the run. Three weeks on the <laughs> run that we've gone politics. <laughs> well, it's a big part of the world that we're in right now. It's uh, You can't avoid it. It's got into everything. Avoid it, exactly. Worth noting for regular listeners out there that we're going to take a break after this week for one week, because Lee yes. is off on his jollies. I am. He's, uh, he's off to sunny climbs. Are you? After sunny so. climbs? Yeah. <laughs> you get there, I'm leaving you sunny climbs behind to go to sunny climbs elsewhere. That means that because the San Diego Comic Con is taking place this weekend and the news is only really starting to circulate out over the Saturday and Sunday and we're recording this on the Saturday, we haven't got much to cover. And so we'll be holding, like, it'll give us a week and a half before we next record to digest everything that came out as SDCC. And so when we do return, we will have quite an SDCC heavy news section. Yeah, we will discuss in detail so if you are listening to the podcast you also may know that we go out on no barriers radio which is nobarriersradio.com on a thursday night and we are putting together a very special radio only version of the show so join us on no barriers radio and what do we have on this week's special it's nearly summer Special, special. <laughs> Where was I going with that? That's a lot of specials. Oh, that's a lot of really special show. So what do we have on this show? The one before the summer break, shall we say, before school's out. If never there was a better cue for some music there, I don't know. <laughs> on this week's show, we are going to be doing a deep dive into Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Andy is going to be reviewing... Runway 34, which landed on Amazon a couple of weeks ago. I see what you did there. I see what you did. <laughs> You're so good at this. The Grey Man that landed on Netflix. And Pause of Fury, The Legend of Hank, which was those three words, A, Sky, original. But before any of that, we've got the bit that you really tune in for. Yes, it is. The segment that Colin likes to call Colin and the news likes to call news. <laughs> So, as ever, with the news, let's kick off with this week's box office. Now, it's been a pretty quiet couple of weeks since Thor opened, but there was, as we reported last week, a big drop-off. Does that continue? Is Top Gun Maverick still soaring high? 
let's find out. So in the US, Nope opened straight into first place, taking 44 million in its opening weekend. Jordan Peele's film getting really positive reviews and clearly a positive cinema-going audience. Um, Thor Love and Thunder sticks into second place, taking 22.1 million. It now takes it up to 276 million in the US, 598 million worldwide. Third place, Minions The Rise of Gru takes another 17.7 million. The film is now up to 640 million worldwide. Where the Crawdads Sing is still holding in, 10.3 million. And Top Gun, yep, it's still retaining its position in the top five with another 10 million added onto its total in the US. Here in the UK, not a lot of content this week. So Minions popped itself back up into first place. It's on its fourth week now. It took another 3.09 million. It's a start of the summer holidays, so audiences are taking families along. It's up to 28 million in the UK alone. Thor Love and Thunder sticks in second place. 3.05 million taken this weekend. Where the Crawdads Sing is in third place with another 1.3 million added to its total. Elvis holds fourth place with 1.2 million. And Top Gun Maverick, yep. Same as in the US, Top Gun is still holding in there in the top five, another 1.1 million onto its total. I tell you what, Nope's getting really good word of mouth. I am so excited for this. I um, (laughs) really enjoyed Get Out. It was okay with us. I thought it had a lot of problems, but I'm I'm really stoked for this one. I I was the other way around. I I thought that Get Out was, was good, but not as great as everyone else was raving. But I absolutely loved us. I, I I just latched onto it. I thought it was very Twilight Zone esque in its uh, in its story design. Um, I, I thought it was interesting related to Nope. Did you see that um, someone tweeted out uh, that Jordan Peele is the best horror horror director of all time? Um, name another director that has made three great horror films. And Jordan <laughs> Peele himself responded to it, going, "Whoa, I appreciate the enthusiasm, but I will not tolerate this disrespect towards John Carpenter." Fantastic. <laughs> I mean. Th- Jordan Peele, he's a film fan, film geek himself, and he makes films that he's been inspired by other filmmakers yeah. and makes them in a in a very creative and very clever social commentary aspect. I'm looking forward to seeing Nope. It's a shame that we've got a couple of weeks between the US release and the UK release, but it means that you know the word of mouth out there that is generating some good buzz is filling me with a lot of lot of. <laughs> a lot of hope for Nope. Oh, so we did there. Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, we'll report back after our one week break on what we thought of Nope. So moving on to the rest of the news. Andy, what have we got? Here's a common thing is that every time more news about drops about this, I get excited and you just look at me blank faced. So Simon McQuaid is going to return as director for the follow up to his 2021 action adventure hit adaptation of Mortal Kombat. <laughs> he made his feature directorial debut on the previous film, which got released simultaneously in theatres and HBO Max last April and actually topped the box office and ranked amongst the top feature titles ever on HBO Max. So it did well on both avenues. I've still to watch it, Andy. I've still to watch it. I got sent so a, much a, fun. a screener of it and I, it sat on my computer <laughs> waiting to be watched. Uh, Jeremy Slater is writing the screenplay for the sequel. He's taken over from Greg Russo and Dave Callahan. We like Slater's work on Moon Knight and Umbrella Academy. So some good names working on it like i've said last time we mentioned this i'm hoping that they tap more into the lore of mortal Kombat and don't bother with any new characters created just for the screenplays there's enough wealth out there but we'll find out when it goes into production and uh, i will get very excited and start chanting mortal Kombat" to anyone who walks past me when a trailer eventually lands it'll make sense then folks um i've got a little bit of uh, breaking news breaking so it's a bit of tv news doctor who as we know that there is a new Doctor 
that Russell T. Davis has returned. But some details that I want to share with you. Um, it's been reported that the new Doctor Who series, which we know is in the works right now, including the 60th anniversary special, will be making an unexpected streaming service its home. Mm. And rumour yeah. has it from insiders is that currently in discussions with the BBC, it's been reported via Bloomberg that Disney is acquiring the streaming rights, which they described as a new Doctor Who series. It's early stages, no guarantees. It is just a rumour, but I can't see the BBC giving up on it as one of its prime series, but I can certainly imagine that if it's going to land in the US, rather than go to Disney America, that's going to get a much bigger audience. On, on Disney. Yeah, this will be similar to how in the UK we get all the um, Hulu and FX stuff to Disney Plus over here. It'll be part of the distribution internationally section of it. The BBC will obviously keep it. It'll still be a BBC Prime show. It'll probably go onto BritBox in the UK before it goes onto any other streaming service. But this will be for the international distribution, which that gives them a significant distribution under one umbrella, which at the moment the BBC are having to use different avenues for different countries. This gives them one company to organise their international distribution of the show. And I think it will be huge, huge for the show to get such a distribution. Yes. Um, in addition, with regards to Doctor Who, news has also come out that Stephen Moffat, who everyone absolutely loved until he was actually in charge of the show and then everyone turned against because that's, <laughs> that's that the Doctor, that's that the Doctor Who fan, fan way. is like You turn on the creators that you actually love once they actually have full control of it. Well, apparently he's going to return to pen a few of the episodes oh, good. under Russell T. Davis's era, which, if you remember back to when Russell T. Davis was last in charge of it, the best episodes were the ones that were penned by Moffat anyway. He yeah. developed so many storylines, he, he grew new characters, and he showed that, with Moffat, I liked what he did when he had control, yeah. but I could see how he was just kind of... He was getting lost in his fanboy nature because back in the 90s, he used to post on bulletin boards as a fan of Doctor Who with theories and speculations. And if anyone had read those bulletin boards, I did, um, you knew exactly where his stories were going because he'd speculated them and theorized around them all those years ago. He was too much of a fanboy to back off and go, can we make this accessible to the general audience at the same time? And it got too intricate, too complicated, too woven. When he's reined in with someone else taking overall charge... Marvellous writer. So I'm really excited to see that combination. Oh, that is good news. I think his last few episodes that he did with Peter Capaldi were some of his best writing. That final season of Capaldi was amazing. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Um, I know it had been a bit dodge in his first season, but that final season was was uh, was pure brilliance. And the Cyberman episodes, uh, which I think was a two-parter, was, yeah. was stunning. Absolutely stunning. And while we're in the world of TV, did you know that Apple TV is developing a Godzilla TV series? And also, did you know that Kurt Russell and his son, Falcon, a Winter Soldier star, Wyatt Russell, are joining the cast. This is all kinds of epic, isn't it? Yeah. Now, did you know that they've shared the screen together previously? They did, and I should know this, but I'm, I'm, I can't think where, but tell me where. Way back in 1998, the sci-fi film Soldier. Oh, right, yeah. I never saw that one. Your favourite director, Paul Anderson. Yes, you, I, I, I quite like Soldier. <laughs> I've never seen it, you know. I, I don't Maybe I think Bad Word put me off. Yeah, it got a slating. But, um, yeah, the... Godzilla TV series for Apple TV Plus and Legendary Television. Kurt Russell, Wyatt Russell, both working together. Uh, the, the series is going to be set in the same world setting as the four films so far, Monsterverse franchise. And 
the two will be joining a cast that also includes uh, Pachinko star Anna Sawai, Ren Watabi, Casey Clemens, Joe Tippett and Eliza Lasowski. The show is set in the aftermath of the battle between Godzilla and the Titans that decimated San Francisco. There's a family in there that sets out on a journey to uncover the creature's buried secrets and a legacy that links them to the secret organisation known as Monarch. Details on all roles are under wraps. Chris Black, who gave us Outcast, and Matt Fraction, Hawkeye Matt Fraction. Wow. Co-created the series, and Black is serving as showrunner. Matt Shackman, WandaVision, is set to direct the first two episodes. There's a lot of heavy names in there. Yeah. Some very good creatives behind the scene. And I like the Godzilla movies. I've liked them on all the MonsterVerse movies so far to some degree. Some of them yeah, are a bit yeah. weaker than others. But generally, if you want to see giant creatures stomping things and smashing each other up, they've delivered. I do think that a TV series, particularly in the right hands, can give some chance to really flesh out the monarch aspect. Because I think the monarch aspect is what bogs down the films. Yeah, yeah. They're trying to do too much with the backstory of this shadowy organisation. A TV series allows them to explore that in a better format. So the films can literally just be giant monkey beats giant lizard. Yeah, I, I mean, interestingly enough, I read an article only the last few days about Apple TV, where they were saying, you know, the amount of star quality that they've got on Apple TV, the quality of the shows uh, and its quality over quantity. We've talked about this many times, but are people actually watching it? And a bit like Netflix, I think they need that one show where people go, I'm in. I'm in for this thing. Yeah. I think Ted Lasso did it uh, for a lot of people. The only problem with Ted Lasso is, you know, as we discovered ourselves, is that the whole aspect of it being marketed around a football coach makes people like me and you who aren't f- sports fans initially go, yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have joined in unless you told me how good it was. You have to watch that first episode to really fall in love with it. Yeah. And it's getting, once you get, it's getting people to give that first episode a watch. And that's the only problem that they've got is they don't quite manage to know how to get people to latch on to Apple TV things. Severance is another great one. Yeah. But you try telling someone, Adam Scott's magnificent in it. It's like, who's that? Oh, he was in uh, Parks and Rec. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Godzilla is such a household name with yeah. the uh, recognition of the movies and the recent movies and, and just the, the cult icon of the character. I think this could be Apple TV's way in. I'm, I'm, I'm quite uh, shocked that HBO Max didn't pick up on this and that Apple have. Yeah, especially know, with it being legendary. Yeah, I know their relationships changed in the last couple of years, but uh, yeah, interesting. This could be this could be the big one for Apple. Not to say that the stuff they are doing isn't excellent. There's not one yeah. show yet which I think has got some amount of great quality to it, even if it's not the show for me. Um, John Wick Chapter Four, a trailer landed this week, and it's absolutely insane in the best possible way <laughs> exactly how you'd expect isn't it i mean i don't even need a trailer to tell me that i'm there for john wick chapter four i'm so far down that rabbit hole now that they can just land the film tomorrow and i'll be i'll have watched it today who would have thought a few years ago that we would have seen keanu reeves in this particular kind of a franchise and um you look back and one film we need to do a deep dive into is is keanu reeves and constantine yeah that the, the Keanu Reeves would be in this kind of a franchise, but uh, bring him on. I, I rewatched Nobody the other day, and uh, uh, I know you and I had so much fun with it, and I'm watching it now for sort of the third time. I still have a lot of fun with it. Yeah, and on regards to trailers, the Dungeons & Dragons trailer landed as well. This I've week. not watched that one. I'm, I'm not a huge D&D fan, but has it lived up to expectation? It looks great. 
Okay. It looks so much fun. It, it, there's been criticism online from some of the D&D community saying, it looks too jokey and silly. It's like, have you ever played the tabletop game? <laughs> I mean, th- this, apparently, I've discovered since by researching down, and you know what I'm like, when something latches onto me, I just spend hours in front of the computer researching and researching and researching. Because uh, I've been a fan of tabletop gaming since the early 90s. I've played D&D, I've played Cyberpunk RPG, I've played Heroes Unlimited, I've played Rifts, all kinds of tabletop games. I am a geek, nerd, dice rolling, paper, stats kind of guy. And D&D to me has always been jokey and fun. And particularly through the 90s, because some of the um, games that got developed on computers drawn from like the Forgotten Realms stuff, etc., included like Baldur's Gate, had characters such as Minsk, who's a warrior with a painted face, who has a pet hamster called Boo that he believes is a killing demon. Yeah, it's always been jokey. It's always been silly as far as I'm concerned. But apparently, when D&D started in the 70s, it was very serious and very stoic. And, it, oh, you don't have fun. You don't joke. It's, it's serious questing. And it's right. that community of, like, 70-year-old men now who are like, <laughs> bruh, these youngsters have ruined our game. They ruined your game back in the 90s, guys. Grow up. D&D is silly. It's supposed to be fun. And the film, a film looks great. The CGI in the uh, trailer of the dragons, etc., looks really fun. There's some dubious CGI. There's a mimic. Uh, mimics are uh, that they look like treasure chests until you try to open it, and then it's got a great big flapping tongue and um, teeth and tries to eat you. That looks a bit dodgy. I'm hoping they're going to touch up the special effects, but the cast look like they're having fun, and that's what matters to me. And there's jokes at the expense of the character designs of the game that fans of the tabletop will have had the same kind of discussions around them and will be chuckling along. So there is little references for the fans of D&D, but it doesn't it doesn't do it in a way that if you're not not a fan of the game series, you wouldn't still be laughing anyway. I'm looking forward to this, especially after the disappointing last couple of entries, the one which went to cinema way back in the early 2000s and then the DVD sequels. Right. Were, were very very well, they basically looked at it as like, oh, this is just a silly tabletop game. And they made a silly tabletop game film. This looks like it's making a fun, family, epic scale adventure film. And that's what D&D should be. We're going to talk uh, in a later show about a lot of the stuff that's landing on uh, the SDCC this year, including the Marvel stuff, the Gremlins, Secrets of the Mogwai series, uh, the fact that The Walking Dead, which we already knew, is to bring back Andrew Lincoln. Danny Gura back for a mini series, but we're going to talk about all that stuff later. What we are going to talk about, though, is Mark Foster is adapting Neil Gaiman's The Graveyard Book. Cool. I, I do like me a bit of Gaiman adaptation. I've not read The Graveyard Book. I don't know anything about it. What I do like is Mark Foster, though. And it's from what I've heard, it's one of those books that has floated in development hell and limbo for donkey's years and a mark foster is the latest filmmaker attached to it story follows a little boy called nobody bod for short who clambers out of his crib one night and out of the house and the same night that the entire family is killed by a terrifying man called jack the baby wanders into a graveyard where he is hidden from the killer by friendly ghosts and then adopted by them nobody is then called and is raised by the owens a deceased couple. Originally published in 2008, the book won several awards, including the American Newbery Media Award. So, very Neil Gaiman by the sounds of things. Uh, I do like Mark Foster. I think he's a a strange director who goes off in all kinds of tangents from Bond to Peter Pan to zombies. He seems to he seems to have touched them all. Well, let's hope that this is the Mark Foster who gave us Finding Neverland and not the Mark Foster who gave us Quantum of Solace, shall we? <laughs> yeah. 
game and stories, some directors struggle to adapt to the screen and don't quite tap into it because his storytelling, his storytelling is so woven and layered that it can be hard for people to tap into. But fingers crossed, this one goes well. Now, it's been a while since we last mentioned this, but Wes Anderson's next film, Asteroid City, finally has a synopsis. Okay. The film is described as a poetic meditation on the meaning of life. It tells the story of a fictional American desert town circa 1955 and its junior stargazer convention, which brings together students and parents from across the country for a scholarly competition, rest, recreation, comedy, drama, romance, and more. And the stacked cast, take a big breath, includes Jason Schwartzman, Scarlett Johansson, Tom Hanks, Jeffrey Wright, Tilda Swinton, Brian Cranston, Ed Norton, Adrian Brody, Lee Schreiber, Hope Davis, Stephen Park, Rupert Friend, Maya Hawke, Steve Carell, Matt Dillon, Hong Chow, Willem Dafoe, Margot Robbie, Tony Revolori, Jake Ryan, Grace Edwards, Aristo Meehan, Sophia Lillis, Ethan Lee, Jeff Goldblum, and Rita Wilson. Now, there was a name missing from there. I don't know whether you picked it up. Oh, no, Bill Murray. Bill Murray has not been mentioned, which whether his absence is not just on that listing, but from the whole film is unclear. Ah, well, that happened with Darjeeling Limited, didn't it? He was yes. mentioned there and he only made it a very, very brief cameo. <laughs> it's, it's like the old, um, if you cut down a tree with when no one's around, does it make a noise? If they make a Wes Anderson film without Bill Murray in it, is it a Wes Anderson film? Does it really exist? Yeah, it's very possible that it's just now expected that Bill Murray will be part of the cast lineup, that he doesn't need to be mentioned because it's a Wes Anderson film. And he might just have just a simple one scene walk on part. We don't know, but we'll find out hopefully soon. There's no release date yet for it, but the film is already deep into post-production. So it's expected that that will be announced sooner rather than later. So we can't do this week's news without mentioning and any fans of this particular franchise, please leave the room now. But the Rolling Stone story that dropped at the beginning of last week that kind of covered a lot of the areas that we talked about, which was the amount of bots being used for the Snyder Cut release. Yes. Some investigations by third parties and analysts have discovered that at least 13% of the accounts that were involved in the push of the release, the Snyder Cut movement, etc., were bots. As you can expect, the Snyder army have jumped to the defence gone, 13%, so that means 87% wanted it. It's like, you're missing the point. Those 13% were prominently tweeting and generating the traffic that all the, the rest of you latched onto. That's 13% of accounts that probably accounted for about 60% of the posts. In addition, further investigation has gone into, because you, you often see that people say, People forget how much good the Snyder Cut campaigner did with raising money for this and raising money for that and for this charity and that charity. And yet there's never been any fundraisers linked to. This money came from somewhere and no one knows where. Now, whilst it's all speculation, a lot of the fingers of suspicion for a lot of this activity points back to, sadly, Zack Snyder himself. Mm. This was a pretty hard-hitting article. Clearly, it's a Rolling Stone story, and they are very, very good journalists. But of course, you know, they've been called out that it's sour grapes, etc., etc., especially by Ray Fisher, who seems to raise his head above the parapet for this one, say he had not been approached, apparently he had been approached. Ray Fisher then had to go back and say, yeah, but you approached me on while I was having my hair cut or something like that. And it's, it's all got a little bit 
you know, this is this is the film industry. We should be there to enjoy films, and this has been a, a toxic period. Whether you like the films or not, that doesn't come into play. Can't take anything away from you if you're, you're fans of the film. That's entirely up to you. You know how Andy and I uh, stand by it. We also, um, you're also pretty clear about how we feel about the films of Zack Snyder, and uh, we talked about Sucker Punch last week, in which. Even though Andy doesn't like the film, he praised a lot about it. Over the years, uh, you know, every time that I've mentioned how much I dislike the DC stuff that he's done, I've still shown my respect for Zack Snyder as a director and think that if he has the right project, he could be amazing. Mm. I've got a lot of time for him. And like even in the interviews that you see him in, he's always come across as very enthusiastic and very, you know, very down to earth. But then this article kind of linking him to be a bit more manipulative than what we actually thought actually sours my opinions towards him as a person, which I think is a shame. Yeah. If you're interested in knowing a bit more and reading the entire article, I suggest you do so because I think there's a lot of points that, that we called out uh, previous shows ago and it's, it's not a pretty picture. I'm not saying that it is the truth. It can be a variation of opinions, but it's well worth reading. I don't think we're going to spend much more time on it than that, but I feel we could. I just want to finish off say, like on this topic by saying that one of the responses that the Snyder cult had was to point out that this was clearly a Hamada hit piece landing the day before the film's digital release that in order to discredit Zack Snyder. Yeah, because, you know, Warners and Discovery would clearly want a hit piece to damage the sales of the product that they will make money from. And they don't seem to get that. The Snyder cult seem to think that, oh, yeah, Warners just want to throw money away. And so they don't want to make any money from this. So they're trying to disrupt the sales of their own stuff. It's ridiculous. They also still seem to think that the Snyderverse will be restored, even though it's quite apparent from all of this that Warners and Discovery don't want anything to do with Snyder going forwards. How was it that I um, suggested it to you? This cult put the moron into oxymoron. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you want to throw an additional $70 million away just on a Rolling Stone interview, and of course Rolling Stone are going to release it when there is the release of the digital cut of, of Justice League Director's Cut. So that's journalism. Yeah. Always release a story when you know that there is something else in circulation to hook onto. But yes, it was it was quite damning. And I'd heard rumours through some contacts of mine that it turns out looked to be pretty spot on. You know, it was an interesting piece and, as I say, fairly damning. Anyway, moving on. Paramount Pictures has now announced a March the 8th, 2024 release date for A Quiet Place Day One, the spin-off feature set in the same universe as John Krasinski's A Quiet Place films. Uh, this is the film that will have uh, Helmer of Pig, Michael Sarnowski, directing, and it will be a whole new story set within that same world, <laughs> and I assume from the title, will be set on day one. It will serve as a prequel. Bit of a giveaway, really. Showing more of the events, briefly glimpsed at the start of the second film, where we see the creatures first arrive on the scene. Blunt and Krasinski aren't expected to reprise their roles, because, as I said... This is a new story within that world. But it would be a surprise if you didn't at least get a cameo from one of them. Eddie Murphy is feeling a little bit like Christmas and he's about to release his Christmas first film under his new relationship between Amazon. And that's called Candy Cane Lane. I didn't know that uh, Eddie Murphy had entered into a relationship with Amazon, but he did some good work with Netflix, especially Dolomite Is My Name, which was a real return to force for Eddie Murphy, I thought. Well, on Amazon, we got Coming to America. Yeah, of course we did, yeah. Landed, so that started the union, and that performed well for the service. So it's a no-brainer that they want to continue working with him. He's, he's got a bit of a renaissance going on. 
after years in the wilderness, I think just Dolomite is my name is the one that yeah. really put him back on people's radar. Glad to see it. Shame that coming to America was just a bit too mm, yeah. stuck to formula and just tried to play on its old jokes. But I'm still interested to see what Eddie Murphy can deliver on any future films. Uh, what I'm not interested to see deliver, and I'm glad they put it back because I've got more time to prefer, Sony's Madam Web film, which has now shifted to October the 6th, 2023. So we can take a breather. We can get to October when there will have been there will have been a dirge of no films coming out for two months. So maybe this might seem better by the fact that at least we finally got something on the screen. The Dakota Johnson led film will take over a slot that was currently penned for untitled Marvel film because Sony genuinely don't know what they're doing. So they're just calling everything untitled Marvel film now, which has now been pushed back to June the 7th, 2024. So I'm looking forward to untitled Marvel film in 2024. Also, as a result of the shift, the Patrick Wilson directed fifth Insidious film is going to take over Madam Webb's old slot of July the 7th, 2023. This is part of a whole reshuffling that Sony have been doing with its upcoming movies. Its George Foreman biopic has moved up a week to March the 31st, 2023. And The Pope's Exorcist, its supernatural tale, has moved to April the 7th, 2023. And in addition, the Tom Hanks-led A Man Called Otto is now set for December the 14th, 2022, rather than Christmas itself. So they want to get that one week lead in, which is always a good sign because that shows that they've got optimism that it'll do fantastic business from the start of December all the way through into January. A little bit of TV news roundup to finish off the, the main news today. So three-time Oscar-winning Lord of the Rings trilogy composer Howard Shaw is returning to Middle-earth for Amazon Studios' upcoming Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. Now, the latest trailers for this have been landing over the past few weeks. Are they good? They are looking better and better as it goes along, and it's starting to look perfectly fitting alongside Peter Jackson's trilogy. Not alongside Peter Jackson's Hobbit trilogy, because they don't even look good against uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It looks that same sheen of CGI, the same detail, and so having Howard Shaw returning to score it works a treat because that will keep it thematically all linked. And the best TV news came this week when the trailer dropped by FX for its sports documentary series, Welcome to Wrexham. Oh, yes. I was about to mention that, actually. <laughs> now, for those who don't know what Welcome to Wrexham is, this is the documentary that has been running ever since Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds bought out the struggling football club of Wrexham Town, which is in north of Wales. And it covers the reasons for buying it, their experience of connecting with the people of North Wales, and how it's worked, not only for them, but also for the town. And it looks like a... I mean, yeah, yeah I'm, a, I'm a Ryan Reynolds beholden fanboy. And anything he does is going to be gold as far as I'm concerned. But the trailer actually looks genuinely charming, heartfelt, and makes me makes me interested in football almost as much as Ted Lasso does. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to this. When it was first announced that we were going to do a documentary for it, I was like, this could be interesting. Because the two of them, Rob and Ryan, are great personalities. You see them in interviews and the banter, the jovial nature. But it's, it's how well embraced they were by the Wrexham community, which normally when there's a buyout from American purchasers of a, foot, like a, a local British football team, there's an uproar and people say, no, oh, they don't understand our sport. But they got embraced. And this documentary will explore why the people of Wrexham actually took to the pair. And I'm interested. I, I want to know their story. I want to know why they did it. Um, sticking in TV land, uh, Raphael Casal, he of Blind Spotting, has joined the cast of Loki season two. And this just in, Andrew Garfield is playing Richard Branson in a new miniseries. <laughs> That's a bit of interesting casting. Yeah. I can kind of see that now. It's not film news, but. 
again, let's just end on a bit of sad news. Ah, uh, yeah. This is more just a heartfelt one because this was a name that had some influence on both of us through our comic-loving career. Indeed. The great comic creator Alan Grant sadly passed away this past week. Well known in the UK for his work with Wagner on Judge Dredd through some of the best storylines that that series ever had. And then he shifted over to DC and had an extensive run on Batman uh, throughout the late 80s and the 90s that introduced a variety of characters such as Victor Zaz, Ventriloquist and Anarchy. His name was well respected within the industry. He was one of the stalwarts of British comic book writers that impacted on any comic book geek in one way shape or form he was also alongside wagner responsible for the batman judge dread crossover story which is still an absolute joy to read it even is. though it makes absolutely no sense it's it, it was so well done that they managed to merge the two universes together in such a clever way and he will be sorely sorely missed as a creator indeed he uh, was part of that british invasion into dc comics in the in the 80s that revolutionized comics along with people like alan moore and um john wagner and all those guys who went over to there and and, and reinvented comics for an awful lot of people uh, he was responsible for creating the character of lobo that gained a, a life of its own during the 80s and the 90s so the sad demise and sad passing of alan grant an absolute comic hero and that folks is this week's news you're listening to your favorite film podcast and yes it's the film file with me lee ford and of course the great andy meekin and if you want to know more about the film file if you're not yet a subscriber please head over to your favorite podcast platform and hit the subscribe button for the film file and please leave a comment and leave a like But that's not all. If you want to know more about The Film File, you can. Head on over to Twitter and follow us at Film File UK. You can head over to other social media platforms. You'll probably find us on there if you search for Film File UK. Or you can contact us directly and become an embraced member of The Film File family. Any thoughts, questions, suggestions, anything that you want to know about films, any films that you're trying to track down but can't remember the name of, feel free to challenge us and see if we can decipher from what little clues you have what film you're looking for. And if we can find it, we'll point you in the right direction. You can email us, podcast at filmfile.uk. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. And in the spirit of the Commonwealth, we are going to be looking at Romeo and Juliet by Baz Luhrmann. Came out in 1996. And boy, did it make an impact. Hard fools, you know not what you do. Romeo, thou art a villain. My only love sprung from my only hate. Leonardo DiCaprio, Claire Danes, in William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. I am fortune for! Rated PG-13. Romeo and Juliet starred Leonardo DiCaprio, Claire Danes. The film came out in 1996 and was directed and co-written by Baz Luhrmann. I guess... The other writer must have been William Shakespeare because, you know, hey, he came up with the entire thing. I, I, th- I think he just gets um, credit acknowledgements on so many films. He had nothing to do with them. <laughs> I think he's just a mate of all the people who make these films. <laughs> well, it's an official title is William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet. I don't believe that he made this many films. He's not, he's not written this many screenplays. <laughs> <laughs> Two teenagers fall in love despite being members of feuding families. If I have to explain the plot of Romeo and Juliet to you then really 
spoilers and everything you need to really get out more what made this so different was the updating to Verona Beach State Park. What made this so interesting was the start of Baz Luhrmann's cinematic style. What made this stand out as it took a several hundred years story that everybody knew and made it into a film that felt incredibly contemporary. So much so that it made it feel like a pop music opera and dealt with such modern themes as teen suicide. A, a, a lovely film. I've gone back and revisited it a few times. What a great cast. I mean, you talk about this was the start of Leonardo DiCaprio's rise to stardom, but we had Pete Possilway, Paul Savino, John Leguizamo, Paul Rudd, and, and this film just blew people away. And I remember the excitement for it when it came out. Do you love this film, Andy? Is it? Did it make an impact for you? Now, this is a film that I've watched so many times and it still impacts on me now. This was a film that opened my eyes to DiCaprio as an actor. He was 21 when he made this and it made me fall in love with Claire Danes as well, who was 17 when she made this. Initially, they wanted Natalie Portman for the role, but apparently she looked far too young compared to DiCaprio, even though he was very fresh-faced and young-looking. And so it made the love scenes look a bit molesty, um, for want of a better word. And so they got Danes, who absolutely shines as the enchanting Juliet. Now, this film, when it came out, saw it at the cinema, and this captured my heart for multiple reasons. Not only is it a great MTV generation retelling of Shakespearean classic, retaining the Shakespearean text in such a creative way with a vibrant soundtrack and hyper-editing and great camera work, but this was one of the first films that me and my lovely wife went to see as a couple. Oh, really? Because it got released two months after we first got together. And so it's kind of stuck with both of us as our film. And so that's one of the reasons that it gravitates to us. It's a love story. Yes, it's a tragic love story. No, me and my wife aren't planning to um, take some drugs and die or stab ourselves at any point soon. But it's the love aspect. It's the falling in love. And we were at that stage in our own romance where we were besotted with each other. We still are. I just want to point this out. It's like, (laughs) it's 20 odd years later, but we still love each other. But it's everything about this just worked for me. I mean, I've always been a fan of Shakespearean literature and I've always been a fan of Shakespearean adaptations. But I, I was always disappointed whenever an adaptation adapted it for a modern audience and changed the dialogue. And keeping the Shakespearean script, but setting it in this modern context and making it so accessible that even if you struggle with Shakespearean prose, within the first five minutes, the context in which it's being used gets you on board. And anyone, I defy anyone to get halfway through this film and still not understand what's going on. It's, it's really interesting you say that, because and I, and I found this with a lot of contemporary Shakespeare adaptations. I'm thinking of the Joss Whedon's Much Ado About Nothing and, and, and mm. Granner's Much Ado About Nothing, is that at a certain point your ear adjusts to the Shakespearean yeah. dialogue and and the almost musical way that the the, the the script is spoken and and eventually you a couple of minutes in and it's a bit like subtitles after a while you kind of get it yeah it just it just takes that adjustment and as soon as you understand and you're there for the story and you get to understand the characters and you get to understand the lyricism of the dialogue then you buy in and I think this was a great introduction to the way that uh, um, Shakespeare can be updated 
because the stories are immortal. Yeah. And this just proves that you can do Shakespeare in any way. And, and, and subsequently, because of that, I think we have seen new variations and new takes on Shakespeare. There's um, some interesting transference of the text across. Any references to swords and daggers are kept in there. But now sword, dagger are all referring Radio. to the types of handguns that or weapons that they're using. So like you'll get a flash up of the close up of a pistol and it'll have sword so that you get every time that someone says put up your swords, it means draw your weapons. Yeah. In addition, one thing that I absolutely love is the fact that the delivery service that fails to deliver the message to Romeo is post haste because there's a line deliver this post haste and it just makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's, like, the, it's the USPS style uh, delivery van, isn't yeah. it? And it's just brilliant that it's just like they use the term post-haste to call the delivery service post-haste. Marvellous. It's so easy to fall in love with, and the cast are so easy to fall in love with. We've already mentioned DiCaprio and Danes, and you did a rundown of some of the other cast that are in there. But how good is John Luguizamo yeah. as Tybalt? He's absolutely brilliant. And um, Dash Mihawk, who never really kind of generated much traffic no. and got his own stuff, is brilliant as Benvolio. The exchanges of slurs and banter in the early scenes between those two feel so natural. And Leguizamo is just sizzling. He's yeah. absolutely sizzling as Prince of Cats. Perfect casting. But we have to draw back to Danes and DiCaprio. Uh, Miriam Margulies, who played Juliet's nanny, has revealed that on the set of it, it was quite obvious that Claire Danes had a huge crush on Leo. And whilst that wasn't re- reciprocated, it actually made for any of the scenes with her gazing at him adorably were all genuine because she had a huge crush on him. And that makes it kind of work. The chemistry between them on screen works so well because you can see the love in her eyes every time that the camera's on her. And we can't talk about the support cast. I mean, Paul Rudd doesn't get a lot to do as Paris. But he plays it's him great. so smarmy, doesn't he? He's, uh, yeah. He, he, Paul Rudd is always likeable. He's, he's, he's fun in there, but you can't talk about this film without mentioning the late great Pete Postlethwaite who plays the monk character in the original telling he's just like a, a priest who like creates chemicals in this one and Harold Perrineau as a um, Mercutio who steals every scene that he appears in he's mesmerizing he adds fun and tragedy in equal measure and when he utters his plague on both your houses lines it tears into your heart like a knife it's it's a great adaptation. It really just proves, as I said before, that the stories of Shakespeare are immortal. This film did really well worldwide at the box office to generally fantastic reviews. It opened up an audience that would never consider Shakespeare mm-hmm. and proved that the stories will always last and are always timeless. And no matter what, you can imagine so many different approaches to the story. King Lear told as a samurai movie, Macbeth as a mafia story, Romeo and Juliet as a, as a musical. It works every time. And this was a, an impressive and unique take on it and set Baz Luhrmann up to be able to do whatever he wanted after that because after this he moved on to Moulin Rouge. Uh, which makes for an interesting double bill those two films. Well you've got to mention that his, his entire trilogy wasn't it was his uh, yeah what he called his Red Curtain trilogy. Yeah we, we briefly mentioned it but let's just really talk about the memorable score and original compositions in this film. This film like, as, like we said at the start, it's like an MTV generation and you can't have MTV without music. Well, you can in this day and age because it's all reality TV shows. But back then, MTV was about music. And the score from this, original compositions from Nellie Hooper, Marius DeVries and Craig Armstrong are complemented by a, a selection of needle drops from oh, wow. artists such as Radiohead, Butthole Surfers, Garbage, 
Kim Mazel, One Inch Punch, and most memorably, The Wanna Dies. I've seen The Wanna Dies, great band, saw them many times. And yes, they do owe a huge portion of their success at the time down to this movie. You can get the double soundtrack album, which has the original score and the pop hits ones. And it's a great listening experience. Every track is utilised perfectly in the scene that it's in. There's even like, you know, a, a, a chorus rendition of Prince within the film. The same way that he did in his next film, Moulin Rouge, the music is very key to the experience of watching this film. You can't imagine Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet without the music with it. Reviews at the time that it came out were very mixed. It didn't quite hit with everyone. It was a generational thing, I think. Yeah, I mean, it was things like uh, Roger Ebert gave it a middling review. He said that it was too hyper and he didn't quite latch onto it. But it built up an audience with the younger generation. And it's appeared on lists such as Films to See Before You're 14. And also, educational establishments now recognise it as a perfect way to engage pupils with the language of the Bard. And many schools will now show this when they start teaching in English literature about William Shakespeare stuff because they know that once the kids have watched this, they will understand the text that is put in front of them. It still feels kind of timeless because of the, the wealth of the storytelling. The MTV style editing hasn't really moved on. If you're still into music videos and some people still are, strangely enough, then that has become a shorthand for that kind of cutting, the MTV style. It still holds up remarkably well today because of the immortality of it. The, I think yeah. the only thing that you go back and when you watch it again is go, oh my goodness, how young does Leonardo DiCaprio look? But <laughs> it, it's still a fantastic film. Kinetic, vibrant, uh, emotive, great soundtrack. Andy, if we want to watch this film, where can we find Romeo and Juliet? You've got two options of streaming services where you can watch it free of charge. You've got Disney Plus and you've got Amazon Prime. Or you can purchase it or rent it from any other services or go and purchase the Blu-ray box set, well worth checking out, which will have the other two films in the uh, Red Curtain trilogy. And that's this week's Deep Dive. When we come back after our break, we've got more Deep Dives for you. But before any of that, Andy's got some reviews. Let's start with the Sky original. Daunting words, my friend. Daunting words. Animated movie that landed in the US on cinema release last week and went straight to Sky this week. Pause of Fury. The Legend of Hank. When this town needed a hero, they got Hank. Now, to become a samurai, he'll need to be strong. Don't forget to land on your feet. Brave. And ready to take charge. This might take a while. Pause of Fury. A Sky original for the UK, this is a film that's been in development for the better part of the last decade, passing from one animated studio to another and further delayed due to COVID. The title of the film may not sound familiar, but within minutes of the start, I knew what this was. As a title theme played out and then the initial scene started up, this is Blazing Samurai, the long gestating animated adaptation of Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles. Set in a land inspired by the times of feudal Japan, only with cats as the dominant species, Ikachu, an official of the land, is putting his finishing touches to a grand palace, but one thing still bothers him, the nearby town of Kakamucho. He sends a band of rogues to ransack the town and to attempt to drive the townsfolk out, leading their appointed samurai to flee the town. The town petitions the shogun to send another samurai, and Ikachu comes up with a devious plan to send them one they will hate so much that they will turn on him. For the task, he assigns a dog, Hank, 
who was set for execution. Taking his position in the town and met with resentment from the townsfolk, he finds a once legendary, now drunken samurai holed up in his cells and... Oh, come on, this is Blazing Saddles. The adaptation of the story, to make it more family-friendly, still kind of tackles the subject of racism. Here, the considering of dogs as a lower life form, and still retains the core story and some of the humour, including the occasional fourth-wall-breaking moments. However, sometimes the film stumbles when trying to balance the kid-friendly approach and the more adult-aimed original tale, and as a result, feels a tad awkward. The animation is passable, nothing extravagant, but there are some nice touches for the telling of backstories of legend or in flashback moments which lend it a touch of creative flourish. The voice cast are drawn from a wealth of strong names. Michael Cera in the lead as Hank, Samuel L. Jackson as Jimbo, George Takai, Jaimon Hounsou, Michelle Yeoh, Ricky Gervais, even Mel Brooks pops up to lend a voice playing the Shogun. It's good to be Shogun, which merely gives him a chance to repeat some of his lines as the governor from the original film. Although, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I had more fun with this than I expected, but I found myself constantly wanting to go and watch Blazing Saddles instead every time it dropped a reference of a line from that film. But I suppose I'm not actually the target audience on this. And as a family-friendly version of that film, it kind of works. It sounds kind of endorsed if you've got Mel Brooks in it, because then he's got to be aware that they've taken his work, unless they've gone, this is... Blazing Saddles, we better get Mel Brooks on, on board. <laughs> yeah, interesting that it's a cartoon adaptation of, of, of Blazing Saddles, as you said, Blazing Samurais instead. What else have you got? Landed on Netflix this week, and that's The Grey Man. We've been talking about this for ages, and we know that it's a huge budget. We know it's got a very limited cinema release. I've been looking forward to it. Don't have the time right now to watch it. Am I going to enjoy this? It's the Russo Brothers. It should be good. Great, man. You got us some compromising information. Lloyd. Make him gone. He won't be able to walk 10 feet without getting his head blown off. He must be Lloyd. What gave it away? The trash stash. Over here. I can kill anybody. Maybe not anybody. Starring Ryan Gosling, Chris Evans and Anna Diarmas, alongside names such as Reggie Jean Page, Jessica Henwick, Alfie Woodard and Billy Bob Thornton, The Grey Man is an action thriller adapted from the novel by Mark Greeny and brought to the screen by the Russos. Intended as a franchise starter, the new Netflix feature focuses on Court Gentry, aka Sierra Six, played by Gosling, an ex-con recruited for deniable black ops jobs. When on one such assignment, he uncovers some secrets that the department has been covering up, and he finds himself targeted by the organisation who send Lloyd Hansen, played by Chris Evans, a former CIA agent with psychotic tendencies, to retrieve the information and take Six out. Not knowing who to trust, Six turns to his mentor, Donald Fitzroy, Billy Bob Thornton, putting him and his daughter in peril. All the elements are here for a solid, Bourne-esque action thriller, with explosive set pieces, a strong cast, and well-respected directors behind the scenes. But once again, the Netflix creative freedom appears to have resulted in another film that winds up feeling far too familiar and is drawn out unnecessarily, meaning that by the time the final act came around, I just wanted it to end. With regards to the cast, Gosling is well-placed in the lead, makes for a nice shadowy character with a mysterious backstory that you find easy to care for despite the work he's done over the years. Evans is on full scenery-chewing mode, as the psychotic Hansen, and is clearly having fun with the role. 
maybe a little too much at times, as the jovial manic nature sometimes gets in the way of any tension in the scenes. Diarmus once more showcases how she desperately needs her own action franchise, with a support role that steals from the main players every time she graces the screen. Action, and there's a lot of it, is overall thrilling and stylistically shot, but it has an over-reliance on smoke. Every action scene seems to find a way to lay a smoke effect into the moment, sometimes obscuring the action to an annoying effect. But generally, the set pieces are varied enough to carry the film through. But, and here's something that's starting to grate on me somewhat, the film's overuse of drone footage shots is unnecessary. Every change of location, and the Russos certainly love to change location, signposting it with large lettering on the screen telling us where the story is now, is met with a drone flyby of streets and rooftops. That alone would be fine, even if it feels unnecessarily padded out. But when the main sequences also clearly utilise drones, it starts to get a little tiring. Good camera work should never have the audience realising the camera work. And unfortunately, drone usage is still in the clumsy infancy, making it stand out immediately when it's implemented. The result was that every time such shots were used, I was thinking, oh, nice drone footage, as opposed to being drawn into the moment. The end result is a well-acted, generally well-directed, but under-edited action film, the likes of which Netflix keep churning out. The location changes are all well and good, but when the time taken for different parties to get there doesn't add up, and the fact that I dwelled upon this is clumsy. Chop some runtime out of this, and it could have been a solid franchise starter. As it is, it passed the time, but it won't be garnering any future visits from me. So this was always promised to be the start of a franchise. Do you think we will get to see? I guess it doesn't matter, does it? Because a certain amount of eyes on this are going to guarantee for Netflix that it's a success. It doesn't. We don't have to worry about box office. I think if they want to get a franchise out of it, first of all, Netflix need to start giving longer cinema windows because this had a one-week cinema exclusivity. And if you know it's coming out, why are you going to bother? Yeah, so it needs to have a one-month cinema exclusivity, especially if you're going to spend two hundred million on it. And secondly, they need to edit pace, edit the films down to be better paced because. I've discovered that this just feels like it's drawn out unnecessarily and it could be cut down. It's the same with every Netflix action film. They're always over two hours and they don't need to be. Okay, and finally. Finally, I'm going to finish with a Bollywood film. You've got a big love of Bollywood. I have indeed. We will talk about that in a little while. Okay. And this film landed on Amazon recently and it's Runway 34. Hi, Captain. It's an honour to fly with you today. Request for clearance. Are you safe? Are you legal? Grace for impact. Tanya, look at me. I need you right now, Tanya. Directed, produced and starring AJ Devon, this tale, inspired by a true story, will seem familiar to fans of the Denzel Washington starring flight from 2012, even though the tale it's drawn from is a completely different one. Captain Vikrant Karna is a flying prodigy, just finishing a run of a long week of flights and ready to return to his family for his daughter's birthday. He spends the night before his last flight partying with friends, and he's tired when starting his flight. When a heavy storm prevents landing at the destination, a series of events play out that lead to him heroically landing blind, literally, at a second airport. However, the investigation into the events, led by Narian Vedant, the ever-excellent Amitar Bakchan, 
uncover some potential factors that may lead to Vikrant not only losing his license, but possible criminal prosecution. This is a film of two halves, the first being the build-up to the events of the dramatic landing, playing out slow enough to allow us to get under the skin of Vikrant and his co-pilot Tanya Albuquerque, played brilliantly by Raquel Preet Singh, as well as the crew and passengers of Flight 77. And then the second half is the investigation, and primarily dominated by the courtroom-like proceedings which dig down into the events of the flight and the character of Vikrant. Running at 148 minutes, the film could have felt a little drawn out were it not for the engrossing performances within. During the first half, we're given hints of factors which may have led to some poor decisions on the flight, which ensure that during the second half, we are continually guessing as to what the outcome would be. And AJ as Vikrant gives us a central character who we root for, whilst also trying to determine if he was responsible for some of the poor choices. The plane landing itself is thrillingly presented, with a real edge-of-the-seat manner, and despite some occasionally dubious CGI, it mainly works. Whilst the second half slows down significantly, by that point we're invested in finding out the truth ourselves, and the presence of Bollywood veteran Bakshan lends some heavyweight acting and intensity to the courtroom scenes that keep us engaged, making for a film that feels much shorter than it actually is. This is a pretty solid film from the Bollywood stable and a worthy entry into the aviation drama genre itself. I don't spend as much time with Bollywood as I ought to. I used to comment on them for a BBC channel. So I had, I, at that point, I would see probably a Bollywood film a week. And I saw some absolute classic um, that would be enjoyed by Western audiences as much as mm. um, Asian audiences. And there's some, some great stuff out there. So that's this week's reviews. What can we look forward to? heading our way over the next couple of weeks. Now, when we come back after our break, we will be talking about DC League of Super Pets that lands at cinemas this weekend. Yes, I cannot wait. Keanu Reeves as Batman. Also, while we're off air, Bullet Train will be coming out, as will Nope. So keep a lookout for them at your local cinemas. That's a, a nice trilogy of different themed films to capture all attentions. So I think we could be coming back with some juicy, juicy reviews. We'll be reviewing those when we come back. Uh, now TV and Sky this week sees The Card Counter, Paul Schrader's latest film, a revenge thriller telling the story of an ex-military interrogator turned gambler haunted by the ghost of his past decisions. Uh, Oscar Isaac, Tiffany Haddish, Ty Sheridan and Willem Dafoe all starring. And Cry Macho. Clint Eastwood's latest release wasn't that great, but maybe it'll work a bit better on the small screen. It just didn't feel great on the big screen. And over on Amazon, not many people liked it, but hey, I loved it. Scoob lands this week. If this is the Scooby-Doo movie that spends more time with other characters, not Scooby-Doo, that upset the Scooby-Doo fans, but I absolutely adored it because it's a Hanna-Barbera love fest. I'm all for it, and I'll be watching this again this week. I want to point out that it landed on sci-fi channel which i think has now been taken over by sky officially rather than being its own mm. thing uh, and that's an american series called from not a great title if you're a fan of salem's lot if you're a fan of if you remember wayward pines yeah it's a kind of a combination of both those ideas and um there's a connection to it with romeo and juliet as they both feature harold perino um episode one in if it carries on like this it could be a neat thing. And that's from on the Sci-Fi channel. And that, folks, is it for this week. As Andy said, we're going to take a break. But before we go, we have to talk about our neat things. Stuff that we enjoy, like, done, you name it. As long as it's neat, we're going to talk about them. We're Commonwealth-themed this week. Andy, what is your Commonwealth-themed neat thing for this week? So this ties into one of the reviews from earlier. And I said, we're talking more later on. 
And my neat thing, this is something that has been a neat thing for me for years and years, and that is Bollywood films. Now, I know what half of you at least out there are thinking, oh, Bollywood films, they're just all stupid breaking into song and dance for no reason at all, as though you've never watched Grease or The Greatest Showman, or any wealth of musicals, West Side Story, etc. Oh, it's fine for a US film to do it, but if another film does it from another country, you don't like it. But if that's your opinion, that all Bollywood films just break into song for no reason, then you clearly haven't experienced a lot of Bollywood films. Now, I kind of watched Bollywood films through the years growing up, but I started to really latch on them about two decades ago, because the cinema that I was working at at the time started showing regular Bollywood films. And so... On a board day, I'd go and check one out. And films like Devdas, which, you know, it's basically a Romeo and Juliet-esque tale in the Bollywood things. And yes, that resorts to the songs and dance and its traditional Bollywood output. But it was lavish in production. It had a great cast. And I started to pick up on the varying styles of Bollywood. You have action films such as Doom, which is basically Fast and Furious on bikes. You've got crime films such as Don. You've got the more gritty crime things, such as Sarkar, which is, um, it's basically the Godfather being adapted to the Bollywood, and it, it doesn't break into song and dance for no reason. You've got hom- horror comedy of Go, Go, Agone, which, again, no song and dance numbers in this. This is just a complete zombie horror film. And my eyes got opened pretty swiftly to the wealth and range of Bollywood films, and I always urge people to go and check things out. There's crazy sci-fi nonsense, there's comic book heroes, there's drama, there's tense thrills, sharp comedies. There's a Bollywood film out there for everyone, ready to convert you over to what the industry can offer. Amazon is packed with them, albeit they will be buried somewhere. But if you do a search for names such as Shah Rukh Khan, Shah Rukh Khan is an absolute legend of the Bollywood screen. Uh, He's been in some great comedies, some great action films, well worth starting with any of his things such as Don and Don 2. Once you've searched for a few of them, and watched a few, the algorithm will start to hit you and you could start to discover the rather extensive range of Bollywood films out there. So don't let any misconceptions of what Bollywood films are put you off exploring. In fact, start with Runway 34 that we reviewed today and see what a Bollywood film can do when it's not breaking into song and dance every 15 minutes because it's a more serious real-life drama and it's well-acted, well-represented, Get out there, expand your horizons, start exploring more films from the Bollywood industry. Sticking with our Commonwealth theme, I'm going to Canada for hours, and it's a traditional Canadian dish. Now, not everybody gets it. I absolutely love it. And anytime that I'm near a restaurant that that serves it, I've got to have it. And that is Canada's probably number one well-known dish, and that is poutine. Kind of a world-renowned creation. So what is it? It's crispy fries, it's squeaky cheese curds, and a very rich gravy that all combine to create. It's a meal of dreams. And this is French-Canadian food, which has become popular across the world. You can have it with chicken, you can have it with bacon. It's an absolute delightful snack. I've had a go at making it myself uh, and tried to do, because uh, this is a vegan household, uh, and I've managed to pull off a vegan version of it. But as I'm talking about it now, my stomach started to rumble. Um, (laughs) There's a couple of places in every city that you will find that sells poutine. If you've not had it, give it a go. And you will, trust me, you will will call us up and you will thank me. So my neat thing, my Commonwealth-themed neat thing, is a Canadian dish, and it is poutine. Literally, enjoy. That, folks, is it. 
for this week. We're going to be taking a little bit of a break while I go on my my holes and Andy recovers from the grueling train journeys of the last few weeks. <laughs> yeah, they have been great. Last Monday, getting back home because it was the peak of the heat of weather. What was normally just over a two-hour journey ended up being closer to five hours. Yeah, I didn't envy you. I was, uh, I was trying to, to get in touch with you. And when you went radio silent for a bit, I was, I was getting concerned <laughs> about you. <laughs> I was worried that I might have got stuck in Birmingham for overnight, which uh, that would have been a, a apologies to any listeners from Birmingham out there, but that would be hell. <laughs> yeah, just when you're trying to get home. Birmingham's a great city, I must point out. We're going to be taking a break, as I said. Uh, tune in to No Bears Radio, where you will have a very special show. In the meantime, take care. Andy, I will see you soon. Yes, you will. And Andy, parting with such sweet sorrow. 